Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Ruishi Sakamoro has had a prolific career spanning over four decades from techno-pop stardom to Oscar-winning film composer. The evolution of his music has coincided with his life's journeys. Following Fukushima, Sakamoto became an iconic figure in Japan's social movement against nuclear power. As Sakamoto returns to music following a cancer diagnosis, his haunting awareness of life crisis leads to a resounding new masterpiece. Ryuichi Sakamoto's Coda is an intimate portrait of the artist and the man. And we're joined today by the director of this wonderful documentary, and that would be Stephen Nomura Sybil, director of the film Ruisi Sakamoto Coda. Welcome to Film School, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. The uh, it's It's a beautiful film. It is a meditative film. It is an intimate thought-provoking, insightful film, uh, not just about him as a person, but also as an artist. Um, it, it feels like a film in which you spend an, a lot of time getting to know him, as well as it seems to be a film that's very specific about its intent. Tell me a little bit about your process in coming together with Rio Isi on, his, on this film, collaborating with him, I assume. Tell me a little bit about how this all came about. Yes, well, this really began in the aftermath of the triple disaster that struck Japan in uh, March of 2011. And uh, I reached out to him uh, late spring of 2012, so just about a year after the disaster, when I learned that uh, Ryuichi was going to uh, become rather vocal and politically active in Japan, um, you know, and this was a time when uh, the, the prime minister was keen to restart the nuclear plant about a year following the disaster. And uh, Ryuichi was adamantly against it. And, uh, you know, he's a very, very celebrated star in Japan. Uh, you know, uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra can be considered to be like the Beatles of Japan, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was really a big deal back home that Ryuichi was going to take this politically vocal stand. Because in Japan, really, artists are not expected to do so. Um, it's not like here in the West, where every artist or celebrity celebrity has a cause. You know, um, it is very it's a very rare thing. And uh, Ryuichi wanted to take this bold stance because he was really gravely concerned. So when I learned that he was going to do this, I reached out, I sent the proposal, and I didn't think he would even respond, but he did. And uh, he said, you know, if you want the film. Uh, you know, please do follow me around. Um, I'm going to Japan in about a week, and, um, you know, you can come and shoot. So I quickly put my bags together, and uh, I started to put a crew together, and I went back home uh, to Tokyo, which is where I'm from as well, and uh, we started filming. So that was uh, the end of June in 2012, and the film gradually kind of took its course and organically became what it became. But... Um, you know, things really changed in many ways uh, about three years into the process when we learned that Ryuichi became ill with cancer. Uh, right as he was about to begin composing for his latest uh, album of original composition. And so we initially had a three-year plan. We wanted to start filming with Ryuichi 
as he was becoming very vocally active and politically active in Japan and follow him until we are able to observe how all of his concerns will manifest in his art, so to speak. But because of his illness, we ended up working on the film for five and a half years. So by the time you know, we were into the heart of the film, which really became about his creative process as he was composing after his cancer diagnosis, we were all quite good friends by then because we were already working together for over three years. He he seems like such a gentle soul, such a, uh, I'd imagine, once you've gained his trust as his friend, it would be you have a friend that you can seek counsel from. He just seems like a really wonderful person in addition to being this remarkable artist. He seems very open, uh, very, very straightforward, very honest. In the film he is. He's very... Um, straightforward about his mortality and and what lies ahead of him, what's been in his past. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, very much so. He is really very much like what you see on screen. He's very gentle, soft-spoken, honest, genuinely genuine, sincere. You know, and um, and he is just like that. And it was such a pleasure to be able to work with him. So that's the reality that I was fortunate enough to get to know quite intimately. Uh, however, people have told me that during his pop icon days, if you will, in the late 70s and early 80s, I mean, he was less approachable. And, you know, um, he was in many ways um, marketed as a poster child of technology in Japan, as someone who represented the hopes and, and the prosperity that technology can bring. After all, he is one of the um, founding fathers, if you will, of what we know now as techno music. So and and he was actually very unhappy in that role. I understand. At least he told me so. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess Ryuichi has changed quite a lot throughout the years. And he's probably most comfortable in his own skin now. You you mentioned Yellow Magic Orchestra uh, and and its popularity. I do remember. I'm old enough to remember when it came to the United States, uh, and there was a a lot of kind of build up a hoopla about about it and this. Yeah, we were, were just getting ready, just getting used to you know Walter Carlos and the Moog and how this was kind of transforming uh, music. Remember Walter Carlos's classical music album. So there was a lot around that time. A change. The technology was obviously in, enabling artists to expand and explore this area. Uh, and I do remember them, but I don't remember much except that I do remember the name and it was a it was a big thing to happen. I didn't realize to the extent of their popularity in Japan until you just uh, just mentioned it. But uh, it it he was re- that that was responsible in pushing what now is concerned with electronic music, electronic dance, whatever you want to call that music. That is the beginnings of all of that, and, and look at the dominance uh, that has now in the world of music. So been a pioneer in a lot of different ways, hasn't he? Yes, he really has. I mean, he's actually known as one of the you know originators of hip-hop, in a sense, as well. Um, Yellow Magic Orchestra was on Soul Train in the U.S., I think in the late 70s. And um, Africa Bambata oh, yeah. actually saw them yeah. and sampled their music in the Bronx. So, you know, they actually were, you know, involved in this kind of organic movement that eventually became hip-hop and R&B as we know it today. But, uh, yeah, so they, they were actually very influential. But in Japan, it was kind of a, um, psychologically, I think it was a big deal for the Japanese because, you know, they were the first export from Japan to succeed, if you will, in the world of pop music. And, you know, Japan had already kind of gained economic prosperity by exporting cars and whatnot. 
but this was the first in terms of popular music. So they really saw the band as their response to the Beatles in many respects. Yeah. Let's talk about his uh, the, sort of the progression of his career from that of the Yellow Magic Orchestra into the world of scoring films, film soundtrack, that area of his of his expertise. Uh, in the film, in this film, we see uh, a lot of uh, cinematic references. There's clips from different films, but there seems to be a particular emphasis, or at least in his, the founding part of this part of his life, with Tarkovsky, who uh, American audiences will know for Solaris and um, and other films, but certainly Solaris seems to be sort of a touchstone film for in his career as well as uh, uh, American audiences getting to know his work. Talk about that sort of the how that influenced uh, Ryuichi and his work. Yes, uh, well, well, I think it's it's fair to say that Tarkovsky's influence has been something deep within Ryuichi for quite a while, but it has been a particularly important part of his most recent and celebrated album, Async, um, which came out uh, in the spring of 2017. Mm -hmm. And our film Coda also like uh, very closely follows Ryuichi's process of creating the songs, which became a part of Async as well. And I think, you know, uh, what... Ryuichi tells me actually that he was deeply inspired by Tarkovsky's film called The Mirror, which is a very kind of unique movie in which Tarkovsky really, he doesn't follow a specific chronology in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, he also actually incorporates archival footage in a very minimal and yet beautiful way. It's almost like Tarkovsky was creating conceptual art before people knew the phrase. And, you know, every sound that Tarkovsky create, uses in the film is meant to be appreciated as a kind of soundscape. Yeah. And I think this is an aspect that really influenced Ryuchi very much as he was thinking about what he wanted to express in his latest album. Uh, and I think he was inspired by how Tarkovsky incorporates music as well as um, sound effects uh, together and kind of blends those aspects together as, as one, as, as though to say that everything is music, including words and, you know, the sound of the wind and water and musical notes from Bach. So I think that sort of worldview of Tarkovsky is something that really appeals to Ryuichi, particularly now. Yeah. I, I'm also of, of that school. I, I mean, the idea of sound, it just, yeah, I, I just totally, completely relate to that as a, uh, as a concept. And, uh, and I think we have seen over the last 20 or 30 years uh, so many other uh, artist embracing that idea, uh, and it's 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 wonderful. It's wonderful. To, one of the things about his work in, in the film and in in his work period is that there's it's it's very holistic. There's a lot the the, the film the film sh showcases just how he's able to take d things that aren't traditional musical instruments and work with them in order to create sound. And and there's one of the things he, that we he says in the film, which I really was fascinated by. Uh, he's at the at the Steinway, I believe, piano, and he, he hits a he hits a key, and he's talking about the perpetual sound that he's stri he's I don't know if he's striving for that, but it's a concept that intrigues him. And I just thought that was just such an interesting and fascinating thing. And and and, and uh, just tell, talk a little bit about if you if you would about that idea. 
Yes, I mean, he is really a, a deep thinker, but he's also profoundly minimalist, which is unique. And I, I think you might be able to say that it's a very Japanese perspective as well that he has mm-hmm. in some respects. Um, you know, Japan has always had this appreciation for minimalism. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, and, and speaking of Japanese roots, I mean, he was, I mean, this is related to John Cage as well for him. Uh, he was deeply influenced by John Cage, you know, in his formative years. And John Cage, after all, you know, studied Zen and, and, yeah. and many things about Japanese philosophy. But Cage was the one who really suggested to people that they should open their ears and that everything actually that you hear is music, that music can be the act of listening. And you don't necessarily have to compose a score. You don't need notes, so to speak, or a key even, to understand the world musically. And, you know, this is something that is kind of appearing later in life, again, in Ryuichi's work, in a very profound and direct way. And I personally kind of fell in love with this perspective. And I wanted to make a film that was about his awareness and how he senses the world through sound. And I was also deeply moved by how his awareness seems to indicate to him that we are, as a species, in very deep trouble. And he doesn't do this in a kind of way that is, you know, didactic or preachy. He really practices his search for sound and finds these things that concern him enough to bring back home and incorporate into his art in an honest way, in a simple way. And I think that's what's beautiful about Ryuichi and hopefully about the film as well, yeah. that it's a sincere journey, uh, but it kind of resonates for all of us through its simplicity. Yeah, that's uh, the idea of negative space, the idea of negative sound in a way that it, it counterbalances it. And you're right, uh, John Cage. and It really comes through in so many different ways in, in the film. By the way, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Stephen Nomoro Sibyl, and uh, he is the director of this wonderful new film called Ryuichi Sakamoto Koda. He's really known for uh, the last few years, certainly for the last. Well, he's been doing sound soundtracks for, for a while, going back mm-hmm. to I believe his was his. What the first one was? Which one was that? Um, Merry Christmas, Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, right. directed by Nagisa Oshima, and uh, you know he starred in the film as well alongside David Bowie. Right. So, yes, and he composed the uh, soundtrack for the film as well. That was his first film, and then from there uh, he worked with Bertolucci a few times on The Last Emperor, as well as The Sheltering Sky. Uh, He continues to work. He worked on Babel, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, His music was used in Babel, and he scored uh, Ina Ritu's Revenant. Right. Right, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And he won an Oscar for his work on The Last Emperor. So he's he's quite a you know music com- uh, film composer, you know, um, and he's he's a true cinephile as well. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that connection we were talking about with Tarkovsky's work and that and and in integrating the film style in in the way that he approaches music. That and his political involvement. I do want to kind of go back to that because uh, Fukushima is a world-altering event that I think in many ways we've sort of lost sight of just how critically important it is that we understand what's what happened at Fukushima. But what also intrigues me, or scares me actually is a better way to put it, that continues to happen at Fukushima. And we're, we're not out of the woods in terms of the impact on our environment that occurred uh, on that fateful day in March, are we? No, we're unfortunately not. And, you know, I was 
born and raised in Tokyo. My mother's Japanese. Um, I don't want to speak out of anger. You know, I really, you know, I speak more out of compassion and anxiety, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, another major earthquake is due at any time, and we're far from out of the woods. Um, some of the radioactive isotopes that have been emitted from Fukushima last for hundreds of thousands of years right. in terms of their half-life. So, you know, and, and it's in the film. I mean, I went there with Ryuichi. We were literally just steps away from the plant. And the scariest thing I had ever experienced in my life is that when you are there, you actually cannot feel or sense anything because our bodies are not even designed. You know, you cannot sense the danger of radioactivity with your traditional five senses. You cannot taste it. You can't hear it. You can't touch it. It's really an invisible peril. So it's so easy to suppress and to try to forget because it lasts for a long time. And it's a great inconvenience. And I'm afraid what's happening is that we are choosing to forget because the alternative just seems too difficult. And uh, as you had mentioned, we are not out of the woods. Um, we are consistently in the woods. Actually, I think we are in deeper and deeper trouble Yep. In that, you know, the site is hemorrhaging contaminated water on a daily basis. So there's more of a mess to deal with on a daily basis. Right. And yet, you know, the Olympics are coming up in two years. And, you know, there's no, there are no easy answers. We have yet to find out what the true nature of the disaster is. It'll perhaps take generations to know, um, you know, how, how, you know, the human effect of the disaster will really manifest, you know, based on what we know about what happened in places like Belarus and, you know, Lithuania and and so forth. So it's really a very difficult topic to talk about and and to feel. And so as a filmmaker, I think I was driven to intentionally create a film that's rather slow and to somehow try to find a way and explore um, so that we may be able to, you know, find a way to at least feel more through sound. And I don't know if I've succeeded, but that, that is what, that is how I reacted as a filmmaker to my experience of being there. Yeah, it, it, it's an important part of the film and important because it informs him as an artist and, and not only in his commitment to seeing um, in, an end to nuclear power in Japan or making that situation, making people aware of just the dangers involved. It, it, it's, it's great to see him involved and engaged and it's great to see in the film that no, we need to be paying attention, and as as he does, we should all be. Yes, and at the same time, it's such a heavy topic that, right. you know, we try to kind of balance that with, you know, beautiful music, his creative process. He's also a very funny man. I mean, there are several laugh-out-loud moments, you know, that are proving to work internationally. You know, I've been to screenings in Italy and Japan and, elsewhere in the world, here in New York as well. And, you know, people laugh out loud when he talks about his experiences, you know, working with Bertolucci and so forth. And, right. you know, so it's also a very kind of joyful film at the same time. And I, and I wanted it to be that way. I felt that, you right. know, we're, we're kind of anchored as a story in this, you know, astronomical sadness, if you will, which occurred back home. And I mean astronomical in the sense of, of its magnitude. You know, um, it, it could last, it could outlive this problem could easily outlive our species. 
And yet, I somehow wanted to end with the birth of new music. I wanted to find something lighter and more kind of positive and something that could be celebrated. And that's why I decided to call the film Coda. I always wanted to end with the birth of new music because I felt that this big, deep trouble um, that is there back home, you know, I, I had this desire to somehow try to find a happier ending to the story oh. despite that. No, it, it's a beautiful film, and, I, I'm, you know, you're right. I mean, didn't mean to bring down the conversation in that regard, bring down sort of people's perceptions of the film. It's a beautiful portrait. It's wonderful. It's lovely. But this is a part of his life. It's a part of, the, part of what he believes to be an extremely important uh, aspect of humanity and our moving forward. So it, it's, it's, it's in the film, but you're right. It, it's handled beautifully, in, and uh, he's just a lovely man. Uh, and... To see, to see him get some of the the attention that I think uh, for Western audiences who know the name but don't know him, this is a wonderful film for that. Yes, yes, and and it's, it's wonderful. We had a very strong opening weekend here in New York, and uh, we're adding many theaters around the country in the U.S. as we speak. So, um, and this has always been a goal for us. We wanted to. A lot of people know of his name, know some of his work, but right. don't really know who he is. So we were hoping to be able to, you know, reintroduce him to this film as well. And um, but, you know, as as you, you know, rightfully brought this up, also the the sadness surrounding Fukushima is what kind of moved us to start making this film in the first place. It was part of the impetus. So, you know, I, I think in that sense we've kind of went the full circle. You know, you did. It's it's a yeah, it's a lovely film, and my congratulations to you. And uh, the film is opening here in Los Angeles at the Lemley Music Hall. That is uh, today uh, on uh, July thirteenth here in Los Angeles, the Lemley Music Hall three, right there on Wilshire Boulevard. Wonderful, wonderful theater. Great location. A great and great opportunity to see such a just a the portrait of a an intimate portrait of a of a very thoughtful artist who has had an impact on film and on music in, in, in its uh, outlook and its progression for many, many years. Stephen Nomura Sybil, thank you so much for your time and for the film. And uh, here on Film School today, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I, I look forward to uh, your future work. I hope you'll come back. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been an honor and a pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.